Well, it was way back in the year 1738 that a very discouraged missionary went, in his own words, very unwillingly to a religious meeting in London. And as he said, uh, and as we know, it, it said there was a miracle that took place that day, and that's what salvation is. Salvation is a miracle, and this very discouraged missionary who was trying to lead others to Jesus did not even himself know Jesus Christ personally. By the way, that missionary, if you're wondering who he is, was John Wesley. The message he heard that evening was actually the preface to Martin Luther's commentary on the book of Romans. And it was just a few months before that that John Wesley had written in his own journal, I quote from his journal, he said, I went to America to convert the Indians, but oh, who shall convert me? So that evening he went into a church building and his question was answered and the result was the great Wesleyan revival that God used that swept across England and really transformed the nation. It was Paul's epistle to the Romans, by the way, that is still transforming lives even today. It's uh, certainly one of my favorite books in the Bible. God used it in a huge way in my life. It transformed Martin Luther's life and John Wesley's life. And, it, and, and there's one particular scripture that I want to focus on today in, in Romans 1.17, the verse that may have possibly changed the world more than any other. Romans 1.17 says that the just shall live by faith. Key word there, well, there's many key words, but faith is a key word there. It's Because it doesn't say the just shall live by their good works, but the just shall live by faith. And of course, faith is only as good as the object. And of course, the object of your faith must be Jesus Christ alone. And so, the Protestant Reformation and the, the Wesleyan Revival... Uh, we're both fruits of this very wonderful letter we have written by the human author we call the Apostle Paul. And it was written, as far as we know, from Corinth way back in the year 56. But just imagine with me for a moment. You and I can read and we can study this same inspired letter that brought life, spiritual life and power to guys like Martin Luther and John Wesley. Uh, we really, we just stand in a long line of, of, of people. Uh, of course, going all the way back to Jesus Christ, who's the head of the church. So, the Holy Spirit is the one who, who taught the scriptures. He's the author of scripture. And of course, he's the one who also teaches us. So you and I can experience revival in our own hearts, in our homes, in our, in our church, and, Hopefully one day we can see it even in our own nation. But when Paul wrote this letter, Paul had, you have to understand, he'd never been to Rome. He'd never been to the capital city of the Roman Empire. So naturally, he's, he's just beginning with a, a brief description of himself. It's kind of like his introduction to the book. He, he wants to talk of his special status in the church. And so some of his, his uh, friends there in Rome uh, would have been strangers, people he'd never met. So his introduction really gives us a picture of himself. It gives us, uh, it shows his relationship to Jesus Christ and to God and gives us a glimpse, of course, of the major theme of the letter, which some have said the key verses are in, in verses 16 and 17. But the major theme, of course, is the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And so uh, I want to read through these first 17 verses here and, and 
And as we read, just look at the, the links that Paul is giving us here. He's giving us links to his Roman readers, and he's going to do this in three ways. But let's start reading in Romans chapter 1, verse 1. We see the human author is Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of His name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. And then we have the theme verses for the book of Romans, starting here in verse 16. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. That ends that paragraph. So like I said, in in these verses here, in this introduction, and in these theme verses, we have a link. We have several links where Paul is, is linking himself with a group of believers whom he's never met. He wants to be with them. And so let's see these, these links that Paul gives here. First of all, Paul presents his credentials. Just picture yourself, a believer in Rome. You go to church in Rome. You, you've never seen this guy before. I mean, you, you've heard some things about him. And he sends you a letter. Of course, this letter is written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. What are you going to think about this letter from this guy who was a, a Pharisee, a persecutor of the church? You want to know a little bit about this guy before you, 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 maybe you're willing to listen to him. So kind of put yourself in their sandals for a moment. All right? He's presenting his, his credentials and you have to understand him. He starts off with his name Paul. There's many Pauls during that time. Just like there's lots of Pauls today. So which Paul is this? Well, first of all, in verse one, he 
he says that he's a servant of Jesus Christ. That's a really cool Greek word there for servant. Greek word doulos. You ever want to call somebody something, you just call them doulos. We used to do that when I was in grad school. Go around calling each other doulosses. It just, it just means a slave. Here it's translated servant. And so Paul is calling himself a doulos, a slave of Jesus Christ. He's willingly enslaved himself to his master, who is, of course, Jesus Christ. After all, Jesus was the one who bought him and purchased him, and so he is a servant and a slave, and so he is willingly obeying his master. And he, he, he willingly and openly talks about this. The second credential he gives in verse 1 is he's an apostle. He's an apostle. Uh, the word apostle literally, by the way, means one who is sent by authority with a commission. So he's sent with authority. Whose authority does he go under? Well, of course, he's going under his master, Jesus Christ. He has a commission. That commission is, well, he, he talks about it right here. He's called to be an apostle. What, what's this commission? He's set apart, in verse 1 there, for the gospel of God. So literally, his third credential is he's a preacher of this gospel. Hopefully you know by now what gospel means. It just means good news. Literally, it's the good news of a person and work. And in this case, it's the good news of Jesus Christ. So Paul, he separated himself for this mission, commission. It's the, by the way, this good news this is, is the message that we see summarized for us in 1 Corinthians 15. I've put it on the screen here for you. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1, starting there, says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. Verse 4 says that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So you can see there, the gospel is about a person. It's all about Jesus Christ, His person and work, what He's accomplished for us, which we could never do on our own. So, so Jesus Christ is the center of that gospel message. And by the way, the gospel is not a new message. Uh, you can go all the way back to the very first book in your Bible. In fact, right in the chapter where we see sin starting, at the, the, the fall there of mankind in Genesis chapter 3, we have a wonderful promise that one day the seed of a woman would cr- come and crush the head of Satan. And of course, that promise is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So it's not a new, new message. It's a very old, w- wonderful message. The fourth credential found in verses 5 and 7, is that Paul was a missionary to the Gentiles. Missionary is the Latin form of apostle, so you could say that this is someone who is sent, a sent one. So when you think of the word missionary, you need to be thinking of people whom the church sends out to, to bear this gospel to people who do not know Jesus Christ. And so Paul's special commission was to take that gospel to the Gentiles, not just to stay there in Jerusalem amongst, uh, you know, the Jews, but it was to go to all nations. 
So he's presented his credentials. And so now Paul proceeds to this uh, second link between himself and the believers there in Rome. And so he, we see him expressing his concern. He expresses his concern. Uh, you could probably understand why Paul's doing this, I hope. He doesn't know these people. Uh, he was unknown to, to most of them, apparently, but he wanted to assure them that he's deeply concerned about their welfare, especially their spiritual welfare. And I want you to note the evidences of Paul's concern here. Uh, this is a typical letter format. And so in, in often in letters, you know, you, you have an introduction before you kind of get into the main body of the text of the letter. And so he's, he's showing his concern here for them. And, and the first thing he mentions is he was thankful for them. That's the first thing he says in verse 8. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you. And he, he goes on to say, he talks the reason why, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. That's cool, because remember, this is the capital city of the Roman Empire. and Their faith is, is heard throughout the, the known world. Of course, that was the, the Roman world at that time. And so travel was relatively common in that day, and, and the Romans had, had built you know, fairly modern roads of that time. And uh, it was said that all roads led to Rome. And so it's no wonder that the testimony of the church is spreading all around the, the known world at that time. And so this growing witness made by Paul's ministry was, was growing and, and uh, being known. And, and so he's going from place to place, and others are hearing about this. So he's thanking them for that. And second of, the second evidence of Paul's concern is he's, he prayed for them. He prayed for them. Did you notice what he prayed for? I mean, verse 9, for he says, For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of His Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. So he, he wants to be there. He's showing his concern. And then his third evidence is found in verse 11 and 12. He, he obviously loved them. He's longing to see them, really showing a, a pastor's heart. He doesn't want to just be away from them. He wants to actually be there with them. And then in verses 13 and 14, he says, uh, again, he, we, we see him showing that he was in debt to them. He was in debt to them. He talks of his obligation, but he's, he's eager to preach the gospel to those who are at Rome. Well, I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on this this introduction because I really want to get to the heart uh, on this Reformation Sunday. But you need to understand here that the, the uh, as we look at these some of these words here in the text, like this word barbarian, for example, you just need to understand that uh, during that time that just meant somebody who was a uh, a non-Greek, a non-Greek. In other words, if you weren't Greek, you're pretty much considered barbarian. And so the Greeks saw themselves as wise, and everybody else was foolish. Uh, and so that, that's who Paul is talking about here. That's what the Holy Spirit's talking about when it says that, when he says in verse 14, I am under obligation both to Greeks and to the barbarians. In other words, 
I'm under obligation to the Greeks as well as everybody else. He felt that debt. You could see his concern. Then in verse 15, we see he was eager to visit them. Very eager to, to come to them for spiritual purposes, to preach this good news of Jesus Christ to them. Well, let's move on to our third link, and here's where I want to focus most of our time. The third link is he affirmed his confidence. Paul affirmed his confidence, but notice what his confidence is in. It's not in himself. It's not in, I don't know, you, you, you name whatever you want there, but let's see where his confidence lies. He had a great testimony because he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God, by the way, the it, for in it is the gospel. And so in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. By the way, do you notice it says, as it is written? As it is written? When you see that, it means there's a, it's a quotation. Believe it or not, coming from the Old Testament. So this, this, Salvation by faith alone is not a new gospel. It's not a, a new way of salvation. It's, it's the one and only old way. All right. It's the same, same salvation in the Old Testament as in the New Testament. So Paul's actually quoting from the Old Testament here when he says, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And I say that because unfortunately there are well-meaning people who say that in the New Testament you're saved in a different way. No. It's always been by faith in Jesus Christ. It's just in the Old Testament they look forward to Christ, whereas we look back to what Christ accomplished for us. What a, what a testimony that Paul is giving here, though. Just think about it. Some of these words he's using. He's, he's, he's saying, I'm a debtor. I'm eager. I'm not ashamed. Why would he use those kind of words? Why would Paul even be tempted, by the way, to be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ? That's what saved him. Why would you be tempted? Let me ask you. Why would you be tempted to be ashamed of the gospel? The answer that you give is probably the same one Paul gave. Well, you have to keep in mind the, the times. The gospel was identified with a poor man from the outskirts uh, of, uh, of, uh, you know, in, in Israel there, poor Jewish carpenter who was nailed on a cross. Uh, the Jews considered crucifixion a, a, a great curse. And so the Romans had no special appreciation for some Jew who was nailed on a cross. Crucifixion was considered the lowest form of execution given a criminal and uh, was basically never done to a Roman citizen. It was considered extremely degrading. And so putting your faith in some Jew who was crucified was, well, that would have been embarrassing for someone living in Rome especially. And so you could see someone from Rome living in this very proud city might be tempted to be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus. So the gospel came from Jerusalem. Very place, by the way, that Rome had conquered. So the Christians in that day were, of course, not among the elite of society. They were often persecuted. 
And so they're just common people, often slaves. So Rome had uh, was looking down on these people, and so it wasn't uh, very popular to associate yourself with Jesus Christ nor the, the Christian message of the gospel. And so going to Rome to, to preach that kind of a message was, you know, it was like it was, it was kind of a joke for some people. It's interesting what uh, Pastor MacArthur says in his book, Ashamed of the Gospel. I, I'll quote from his book here. It's on the screen. As Paul well knew, the cost of standing up for the gospel could be great. Consequently, too many Christians did behave as if they were ashamed of the gospel. Mockery was a key weapon used by the earliest enemies of Christianity. The Romans especially tended to look upon Christianity as a crude and uncultured religion. Rumors circulated among Roman society that Christians were cannibals because they partook of the Lord's Supper. Christians were accused of sedition, murder, and other treacherous crimes. Some enemies of the Gospels claimed the Christians were having orgies. Pagans even attacked believers as atheists because they rejected all the mythological gods. The price for following Christ could be extremely high. End quote. So those are just some of the reasons why Paul and others in Rome may have been tempted to be ashamed of the gospel. Well, if you've never read about Charles Haddon Spurgeon, I highly recommend you do that sometime. There's several good biographies out there as well as his own biography. And so if you're, if you're familiar at all with the life of Charles Spurgeon, who was a, uh, a preacher in London, England during the 1800s, you've probably heard of the downgrade controversy. Spurgeon, it was said, spent the final four years of his life being at war, unfortunately, among uh, other churches and other even fellow pastors within the Baptist Union. He was at war against the, the particularly the trends of early modernism. And so there was this there was this modernism coming in. It really was a threat to Christianity, to the Bible, to 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 the gospel. So it, it was an attack against the Bible in many ways. And so Spurgeon saw this as as a threat to biblical Christianity, and rightly so. And so he stood for the truth, and and. Uh, so as a result of this, this name came about, which was called the downgrade controversy. The name by which history remembers the controversy comes from the title of a series of articles that Spurgeon published in his monthly magazine, which was called The Sword and the Trowel. And I got a quote from uh, uh, Spurgeon's Sword and Trowel. Here's what he says, I quote, In the controversy that transpired... Uh, Spurgeon resigned from the Baptist Union. Later, he was the subject of an official censure by the Union. Within a few years, the Baptist Union was hopelessly lost to the new theology, and Spurgeon was dead. History has vindicated Spurgeon's warning about the downgrade. In the early part of the 20th century, the spreading, false doctrine and worldliness, Theological liberalism and modernism ravaged denominational Christianity throughout the world. Most of the mainline denominations were violently, if not fatally, altered by these influences. The result in Spurgeon's own England was particularly devastating. 
A hundred years after Spurgeon sounded the alarm, most theological education in England is rank liberalism. Church attendance is a fraction of what it was then. Evangelicals are a tiny minority. In short, evangelicalism in England never recovered. End quote. And that was, uh, that was, sorry, that was actually a quote from MacArthur's book, Ashamed of the Gospel. As I think about that, that's exactly the sort of same sort of thing we're seeing happening in our own country today. But we can praise God that Paul, the Apostle Paul, was not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Where's his confidence lie? It lies in God Himself. In this, it lies in the, the power of the message. And he gives us several reasons why he's not ashamed of the gospel. If you look at verse 16, number one, the first reason he gives is that this gospel has origin in Jesus Christ himself. Have a look at this. Here's why you and I, by the way, should also not be ashamed of the gospel. Because if you look at verse 16, it says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So the message of the gospel is from and is also about Jesus Christ. Now, how could Paul be ashamed of that kind of a message when it comes from God and it's centered in Jesus Christ? Well, uh, let's just be careful because how often are we ashamed of Jesus Christ and we don't speak up when we should? We often are like the Apostle Peter when we're standing and people are, are, uh, are attacking or making innuendos and we just sit silently or stand silently and don't speak for Christ. We do the same. But we shouldn't because the gospel originates in Christ. And the second reason is that the gospel is powerful. That's what Paul says, verse 16, it is the power of God. That word power is a really cool word. It's the Greek word dunamis. Sounds very similar to an English word that we use for dynamite, right? We get our English word dynamite from this Greek word dunamis. Now why is that? Because it's powerful. It's powerful. The gospel carries with it God's power himself. And so when you share this good news with other people, it's not you that do the saving, it's God's power that does the saving and the transformation. Why be ashamed of power? You ever thought about that? I mean, Paul says it's the power of God for salvation, but why? how can someone be ashamed of power? Well, you have to keep this in mind, that power is the one thing that Rome boasted of. They love power. They love to boast about their power and proclaim their power. And every time they had uh, an, an army conquer some other region of the known world, the, the, the Roman general would come riding into Rome on his white horse and, and they'd bring in more slaves and bring in all the wealth they had conquered and make a huge big deal out of this. And so the fear of Rome just kind of hovered over the empire like this cloud like we often have on days during the middle of winter. Right, where you know, you know, we get that really thick cloud, and but they were the the conquerors, and the Roman legions were just 
spread everywhere around the known world. But with all of her military power, Rome was still a very weak nation. And, and we, we saw that in when they crumbled. And so it was said the philosopher Seneca actually called the city of Rome a cesspool of iniquity. The writer Juvenal called it a filthy sewer in which the dregs of the empire flood. And so Rome really cr- crumbled because it, it, its its very center was not very strong. And so it's no wonder Paul was not ashamed. He's taking to sinful Rome and this this message that that could transform, a powerful message that could transform and change people's lives. He had seen that work in his own life. He's seen it work in other people's lives. And so he wasn't afraid for the gospel to go into the very heart of the Roman Empire. He was confident that it would work, even in somewhere like Rome. It had transformed his own life. It had transformed others. And so he knew it could transform people in Rome. Well, there was a third reason why Paul was not ashamed. In verse 16, we see that the gospel is sufficient. Notice it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. See that? Verse 16. How, how powerful is this gospel? It's, it, it is totally sufficient because it says right there in your text, it is unto salvation. That word salvation, by the way, carried tremendous meaning in Paul's day. The basic meaning is deliverance. And so the gospel delivers from the greatest problem you and I have, which of course is sin. The gospel delivers from sin. Particularly, it delivers us in a couple ways. When you think of salvation, uh, you can think of it, uh, first of all, it delivers from the penalty of sin. The gospel delivers you from the penalty of sin. See, what does the Bible say? If you read on in Romans, it says the wages of sin is death. So as a result of your sin, you, you're one day going to die. But even uh, greater and, and more significant than that is is eternal separation from God. But salvation delivers us even from that. But it also, if you read on in Romans, particularly chapter 6 to 8, it shows us sanctification, this deliverance from the power of sin. And so if men and women are to be saved, then it has to be through faith in Jesus Christ. It's in Him alone. And by the way, that was that was one of the solas. Sola is a Latin word for only. It's one of those onlys of the Reformation. Faith alone, sola fide, is how they would have said it in Latin. So it was, it was faith alone, because you have to understand the Roman Catholic system also believes in faith. Even Disney believes in faith. <laughs> uh, yet again, uh, we. Uh, we were just talking about this in BLT last week. The theme that often pops up in Disney movies, if you have ever noticed this, is faith. Believe in yourself. That's the problem. The object of your faith is yourself. And so, Catholic system believes in faith. The problem is, it's not faith alone. It's faith plus other things, which we'll talk about in just a moment. And so... Here's the reasons why you should not be ashamed of the gospel, because it originates in Christ. 
It's powerful. It's sufficient. Number four, the gospel is for all mankind. Now listen to me closely, because I am not a universalist, and I hope you aren't either. Uh, A universalist is one who believes eventually everybody goes to heaven. You know, all roads lead to God, and eventually everybody gets to heaven. But uh, the Bible says that the gospel is for all mankind. This is not an exclusive message for just the Jews. It is for the Jews and the Gentiles. And Gentile just means a non-Jew. So it's for everybody. It was for all mankind. All men need to be saved. So you're not born a Christian. (laughs) So it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile, what you might be. You need to be saved. It's quite clear in the scriptures that, like Mark chapter 16, for example, says, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Why? Because all the world is lost. That was Christ's commission. And so we see it's to the Jew first. And by the way, that's not suggesting that the Jew is somehow better than us. Okay. And it's certainly not the other way around either. It doesn't mean that we as Gentiles are better than the Jews. No, we are equal. So the gospel came to the Jew first. It's in the ministry of Jesus Christ and the apostles that uh, it has come to us. So it's, it's a marvelous message of power that we have. But there's a fourth way that Paul is linking himself with these people here in Rome. And he, and he summarizes the gospel for us in verse 17. So let's look at Paul's summarize, uh, summarization of the gospel. Verse 17 says, For in it, that that's the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So this, this verse, verse 17, many have said is a key verse of this letter. And so Paul's announcing the theme, if you will, of the book of Romans, which, by the way, is the righteousness of God. And by righteousness... That's a big, big word, but just if you kind of break it down, you might understand. If you see the word right, that might help you understand what it means. But the either either forms of, of this, righteousness, right, just, justified, is a word that's used over 60 times in the book of Romans. Clearly, it's a key word. Key. It is the theme of the book. And so God's righteousness is revealed, and where is it revealed? It's revealed in the gospel. This good news. So it's it's in the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it's where God reveals His righteousness. And He's doing this by punishing sin. Sin cannot over be looked. It can't be overlooked. It has to be judged. And so Paul in chapters 1 through 3 shows the entire world stands guilty before a holy God. And so because of that, sin has to be judged. But How is it judged? It's judged through Jesus Christ. If you look at the end of chapter 3, which we're not going to, we're not going to, but uh, you'll you'll see that at the end of chapter 3, for example, uh, we see that uh, it's that through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ that God is seen to be both just and the justifier. So how how can a, a, uh, a holy God seem to be just? I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a good question. We see how love and mercy actually meet in Jesus Christ. 
How can a holy God ever forgive sinners and still be holy? What an important question. Because God is holy, but yet He forgives sin. And so He does that through Jesus Christ. And so Jesus Christ absorbs the wrath that you should receive. And so He is our our propitiation. Let's have a look at this quickly because we see how the gospel is revealed. Number one, it's re- the gospel reveals God's righteousness. What is it revealing? It's revealing God's righteousness. Righteousness means conformity to the right. So you see the word right there? Or you could put it this way, right living according to God's standard. Not your standard, not somebody else's standard, not the government's standard, it's God's standard. And so if you don't match God's standard, then you, as Romans said, you fall short of the glory of God. In the Old Testament, righteousness was by works. Of course, the whole point of the law was to show that nobody could meet that standard. We all fall short of God's glory. And interestingly enough, as I told you earlier, Paul's actually quoting from the Old Testament here in verse 17, when he says, It is written, the righteous shall live by faith. If you have a cross-reference in your Bible, you'll notice it comes from Habakkuk, one of those minor prophets in your Bible, which says that the just shall live by his faith. And it's actually quoted three times in your New Testament as well. You'll find it in Galatians. You'll find it also in Hebrews. Well, as I said earlier, that uh, this this verse may have changed the world more than any other verse in your entire Bible. You've heard that today is Reformation Sunday. The last Sunday in the month of October is always Reformation Sunday. And the reason for that is because way back in the 1500s, Martin Luther nailed 95 theses or arguments to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany. And so, he, uh, you know, he was a Catholic monk. He had no intended intention at that time of of separating himself from that system. And he was studying Paul's epistle to the Romans, and he couldn't actually get himself past Romans 1, verse 17. He just he had this mental roadblock, if you will, when it came to verse 17. And here's a here's what he actually said. I'm quoting Martin Luther's words himself. You can have a look on the screen. He said this, I greatly longed to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans. And nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the righteousness of God. Because I took it to mean that justice, whereby God is just, and deals justly in punishing the unjust. My situation was that, although an impeccable monk, I stood before God as a sinner troubled in conscience. And I had no confidence that my merit would assuage him. Therefore, I did not love a just and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. Yet I clung to the dear Paul and had a great yearning to know what he meant. End quote. If you've never read Roland Banton's book, Here I Stand, which is a biography on Martin Luther, I have it in my library if you wish to read it. It's a good book. But there's one simple biblical truth here that changed Martin Luther's life and changed him forever and changed the world forever. And really it was the, uh, the, the igniting of what we call the Protestant Reformation. 
It was the realization here, if you look at verse 17, and it's this. It's, it's the realization that God's righteousness could actually become a sinner's righteousness. And how does that happen? The means of that happening is through faith alone. Faith alone. And so Martin Luther found the truth in the very same verse that he was really struggling with. He's stumbling over this verse. And he's being openly honest with everybody for them to see here. And so Luther had always seen the righteousness of God as, as uh, well, something to be feared. And for him, he hated it. He's seen the righteousness of God as an attribute of God by which God judges sinners. It wasn't something that he himself could possess or he didn't think he could possess. And so he described the, the breakthrough in this way. It was the breakthrough that put an end to the dark ages. And here's what he says. I'm quoting again from Martin Luther. I saw the connection between the justice of God and the statement that the just shall live by his faith. Then I grasped that the justice of God is that righteousness by which, through grace and sheer mercy, God justifies us through faith. Thereupon I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. The whole of Scripture took on a new meaning, and whereas before the justice of God had filled me with hate, now it became to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. This passage of Paul became to me a gate to heaven. And my friends, that ends his quote, by the way. If you've never experienced that, I have to, I, I just, I have to, you have to ask yourself, let me put it that way. You have to ask yourself, am I really a Christian? Have I ever put my faith in Jesus Christ? Because if you've never been in, in, in Martin Luther's shoes, then maybe you don't understand this. Have you ever been on that, that spiritual treadmill where you're, you're trying hard and hard and hard. You just, and even as Christians, we jump on the spiritual treadmill sometimes and just run and run and run. And, and it's like the, the treadmill, someone's pushing the faster speed button on the treadmill, slowly just kind of pushing that go faster. And, and eventually you just find yourself going faster and faster. And eventually the treadmill gets to a point where you can't keep up with it. And you know what happens? You ever been on a treadmill? And either you get tired, you stumble, or it's going too fast. You go flying off the back end of the treadmill, don't you? You have a nasty fall. Well, that's that's the way it is for a lot of people. And sadly, it can even happen to Christians. And so you need to understand something, that faith alone was one of those, those onlys or solas of the Reformation that really helped bring the gospel back to light for us. And I love the way R.C. Sproul has putting it in, in his book, Faith Alone, he, he says this, the difference between Rome and the Reformation is actually seen here in this, this little, uh, well, this is my way of writing it out. Um, th- I hope that helps. But it, the Roman view was faith plus works equals justification. So in other words, it's not faith alone. The, the Roman Catholic view was you had to have faith, of course, but it was also good works. And so it's through your faith and your good works that you can have this right standing before God. But the Protestant view changed everything. But notice uh, in the Protestant view, you got the same basic words here, don't you? Same words, different order. And the order makes all the difference. 
Notice it's faith equals justification plus works. Now, lest you misunderstand that, let's be clear here. Neither view eliminates the works. Okay, you notice there's works in both views. However, if you look at the Protestant view here, it's actually eliminating the human merit. Human merit doesn't accomplish salvation. Human merit does not justify, it doesn't give you a right standing before God. And so it recognizes that though works are, of course, a fruit of your faith, they're not, adly, they're not actually adding meritorious merit to your salvation. Does that make sense? Okay. Uh, we often talk of grace as God's unmerited favor. In other words, you, you didn't do anything to earn it. And that's what's going on here. So this, uh, second of all, let's move on. We see, second of all, the gospel reveals God's wrath. Now, we didn't read this verse earlier, but look at verse 18. Look at verse 18. In our, in our context here, we see in the text, moving on, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So the gospel reveals God's wrath. Let me just highlight a few things quickly. Number one, that God's wrath is revealed. Why? Why is it revealed? Because of human ungodliness. God's not ungodly. <laughs> we don't match His standard. So, so this is against God. So it's revealed because of human ungodliness. That's why there is wrath. Uh, if we were godly, there wouldn't be wrath. You understand that? God has to judge sin. So it's the wrath of God is revealed. Notice it's from heaven, coming from God Himself, against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness of men. And by the way, we deserve it. We deserve it, and why? If you read on, it says, what are, the, what are these people doing? These, these unrighteous people suppress the truth. They suppress the truth. Everybody knows the truth. And that's why it's often said there's no such thing as an honest atheist. They know the truth. They just don't like the truth. So, you know, it's kind of... I love the way... I forget who, who expressed it this way. It's like kind of like being in a swimming pool with a beach ball. You ever played with a beach ball in the swim pool? You keep trying to push the beach ball down under the water, but that thing, that crazy beach ball keeps popping back up. It has that obnoxious habit because it's filled with air. It wants to pop up to the surface. And that's like people. You know, the beach ball represents truth. You've got to keep trying to press God down, but truth keeps popping its head up. Number two, we see that God's wrath is revealed because of human unrighteousness, which we just talked about. So it's a condition, not being right with God. That's our problem. <laughs> We're not right with God. And only Jesus Christ, who, who is right with God, can make us right with God. And number three, God's wrath is revealed because of human unbelief. Because of unbelief. So God is going to, of course, hold everybody accountable for their unbelief. He's going to hold us accountable for our certain basic truths. And uh, going to hold us accountable for rejecting those truths, for rejecting Him. And, uh, of course, there will be a judgment day to come. 
Well, we've seen some good news. We've seen some bad news here in verse 18. But when you sum it all up, the book of Romans is really telling us one truth. I think it's telling us to be right. It's telling us to be right. We are not right with God when we're born. Romans 1 through 3 makes that quite clear because it shows the entire world is guilty. He takes, he takes an entire chapter, in fact, to show that the Jews were guilty. Another chapter to show that Gentiles are guilty. And unless you think, well, that somehow messes, it misses me, well, Romans 1 through 3 says everybody is guilty. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so we need to be made right because we're sinners. And that's where Romans 4 and 5 come in. It shows us that faith in Jesus Christ saves. Of course, the primary example of faith there is Abraham. Abraham showed that when he put his faith in Jesus Christ, he would he was saved, he was made right, he was justified. So it's possible then to be made right with God. Those who are God's enemies can be made right. You can be made right with yourself, made right with others through God. So the righteousness of God received by faith makes it possible then for us to go on and live lives that are pleasing to God, pleasing to uh, hopefully pleasing to other people. We can be right even in our relationships with our fellow man. And so you go on to Romans chapter 12 through the end of the book. You see all this application based on this glorious doctrinal truth. So it is possible to be made right. Well, Rome needed that message. Paul needed that message. You need this message. And so I I pray that by God's grace, He would help us to be made right in His Son, Jesus Christ.